Book Eight, Chapters Six to Eight of On War, Volumes Two and Three, by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter Six, A. Influence of the Political Object on the Military Object. We never find that a state joining in the cause of another state takes it up with the same earnestness as its own. An auxiliary army of moderate strength is sent. If it is not successful, then the ally looks upon the affair as in a manner ended and tries to get out of it on the cheapest terms possible. In European politics, it has been usual for states to pledge themselves to mutual assistance by an alliance offensive and defensive, not so far that the one takes part in the interests and quarrels of the other, but only so far as to promise one another beforehand the assistance of a fixed, generally very moderate, contingent of troops. Without regard to the object of the war, or the scale on which it is about to be carried on by the principles. In a treaty of alliance of this kind, the ally does not look upon himself as engaged with the enemy in a war, properly speaking, which should necessarily begin with a declaration of war and end with a treaty of peace. Still, this idea is nowhere fixed with any distinctness, and usage varies one way and another. The thing would have a kind of consistency, and it would be less embarrassing to the theory of war, if this promised contingent of ten, twenty, or thirty thousand men was handed over entirely to the state engaged in war, so that it could be used as required. It might then be regarded as a subsidised force. But the usual practice is widely different. Generally, the auxiliary force has its own commander, who depends only on his own government, and to whom they prescribe an object, such as best suits the shilly-shally measures they have in view. But even if two states go to war with a third, they do not always both look in like measure upon this common enemy as one that they must destroy or be destroyed by themselves. The business is often settled like a commercial transaction, each, according to the amount of the risk he incurs or the advantage to be expected, takes shares in the concern to the extent of 30,000 or 40,000 men, and acts as if he could not lose more than the amount of his investment. Not only is this point of view taken when a state comes to the assistance of another, in a cause in which it has in a manner little concern, but even when both allies have a common and very considerable interest at stake, nothing can be done except under diplomatic reservation, and the contracting parties usually only agree to furnish a small stipulated contingent in order to employ the rest of the forces according to the special ends to which policy may happen to lead them. This way of regarding wars entered into by reason of alliances was quite general and was only obliged to give place to the natural way in quite modern times when the extremity of danger drove men's minds in the natural direction as in the wars against bonaparte and when the most boundless power compelled them to it as under bonaparte it was an abnormal thing an anomaly for war and peace are ideas in which their foundations can have no gradations Nevertheless, it was no mere diplomatic offspring, which the reason could look down upon, but deeply rooted in the natural limitedness and weakness of human nature. Lastly, even in wars carried out without allies, the political cause of a war has a great influence on the method in which it is conducted. If we only require from the enemy a small sacrifice, then we content ourselves with aiming at a small equivalent by the war, and we expect to attain that by moderate efforts. The enemy reasons in very much the same way. 
Now, if one or the other finds that he has erred in his reckoning, that in place of being slightly superior to the enemy, as he supposed he is, if anything, rather weaker, still, at that moment, money and all other means, as well as sufficient moral impulse for greater exertions, are very often deficient. In such a case, he just does what is called the best he can, hopes better things in the future, although he has not the slightest foundation for such hope, and the war, in the meantime, drags itself feebly along, like a body worn out with sickness. Thus it comes to pass that the reciprocal action, the rivalry, the violence and impetuosity of war lose themselves in the stagnation of weak motives, and that both parties move with a certain kind of security in very circumscribed spheres. If this influence of the political object is once permitted, as it then must be, there is no longer any limit, and we must be pleased to come down to such warfare as consists in a mere threatening of the enemy and in negotiating. That the theory of war, if it is to be and to continue a philosophical study, finds itself here in a difficulty is clear. All that is essentially inherent in the conception of war seems to fly from it, and it is in danger of being left without any point of support. But the natural outlet soon shows itself. According as a modifying principle gains influence over the act of war, or rather the weaker the motives to action become, the more the action will glide into a passive resistance, the less eventful it will become, and the less it will require guiding principles. All military art then changes itself into mere prudence, the principal object of which will be to prevent the trembling balance from suddenly turning to our disadvantage, and the half-war from changing into a complete one. B war is an instrument of policy having made the requisite examination on both sides of that state of antagonism in which the nature of war stands with relation to other interests of men individually and of the bond of society in order not to neglect any of the opposing elements an antagonism which is founded in our own nature and which therefore no philosophy can unravel we shall now look for that unity into which in practical life these antagonistic elements combine themselves by partly neutralising each other. We should have brought forward this unity at the very commencement, if it had not been necessary to bring out this contradiction very plainly, and also to look at the different elements separately. Now, this unity is the conception that war is only a part of political intercourse, therefore by no means an independent thing in itself. We know, certainly, that war is only called forth through the political intercourse of governments and nations, but in general it is supposed that such intercourse is broken off by war, and that a totally different state of things ensues, subject to no laws but its own. We maintain, on the contrary, that war is nothing but a continuation of political intercourse with a mixture of other means. We say mixed with other means in order thereby to maintain at the same time that this political intercourse does not cease by the war itself, is not changed into something quite different, but that, in essence, it continues to exist, whatever may be the form of the means which it uses, and that the chief lines on which the events of the war progress, and to which they are attached, are only the general features of policy which run all through the war until peace takes place. And how can we conceive it to be otherwise? Does the cessation of diplomatic notes stop the political relations between nations and governments? Is not war merely another kind of writing and language for political thought? It has certainly a grammar of its own, but its logic is not peculiar to itself. 
accordingly war can never be separated from political intercourse and if in the consideration of the matter this is done in any way all the threads of the different relations are to a certain extent broken and we have before us a senseless thing without an object this kind of idea would be indispensable even if war was perfect war the perfectly unbridled element of hostility for all the circumstances on which it rests and which determine its leading features viz our own power the enemy's power allies on both sides the characteristics of the people and their governments respectively etc as enumerated in the first chapter of the book are they not of a political nature and are they not so intimately connected with the whole political intercourse that it is impossible to separate them but this view is doubly indispensable if we reflect that a real war is no such consistent effort tending to an extreme as it should be according to the abstract idea but a half and half thing a contradiction in itself that as such it cannot follow its own laws but must be looked upon as a part of another whole and this whole is policy policy in making use of war avoids all those rigorous conclusions which proceed from its nature it troubles itself little about final possibilities confining its attention to immediate probabilities if much uncertainty in the whole action ensues therefrom if it thereby becomes a sort of game the policy of each cabinet places its confidence in the belief that in this game it will surpass its neighbour in skill and sharp-sightedness thus policy makes out of the all-powering element of war a mere instrument changes the tremendous battle-sword which should be lifted with both hands and the whole power of the body to strike once and for all into a light handy weapon which is even sometimes nothing more than a rapier to exchange thrusts and feints and parries thus the contradictions in which man naturally timid becomes involved by war may be solved if we choose to accept this as a solution if war belongs to policy it will naturally take its character from thence if policy is grand and powerful so also will be the war and this may be carried to the point at which the war attains its absolute form in this way of viewing the subject therefore we need not shut out of sight the absolute form of war we rather keep it continually in view in the background only through this kind of view war recovers unity only by it can we see all wars as things of one kind and it is only through it that the judgment can obtain the true and perfect basis and point of view from which great plans may be traced out and determined upon it is true that the political element does not sink deep into the details of war vedettes are not planted patrols do not make their rounds from political considerations but small as is its influence in this respect it is great in the formation of a plan for a whole war or a campaign and often even for a battle for this reason we were in no hurry to establish this view at the commencement while engaged with particulars it would have given us little help and on the other hand would have distracted our attention to a certain extent in the plan of a war or campaign it is indispensable there is upon the whole nothing more important in life than to find out the right point of view from which things should be looked at and judged of and then to keep to that point for we can only apprehend the mass of events in their unity from one standpoint and it is only the keeping to one point of view that guards us from inconsistency if therefore in drawing up a plan of a war it is not allowable to have a twofold or threefold point of view from which things may be looked at now with the eye of a soldier then with that of an administrator and then again with that of a politician etc then the next question is 
whether policy is necessarily paramount and everything else subordinate to it that policy unites in itself and reconciles all the interests of internal administrations even those of humanity and whatever else are rational subjects of consideration is presupposed for it is nothing in itself except a mere representative and exponent of all these interests towards other states that policy may take a false direction and may promote unfairly the ambitious ends the private interests the vanity of rulers does not concern us here for under no circumstances can the art of war be regarded as its preceptor and we can only look at policy here as the representative of the interests generally of the whole community the only question therefore is whether in framing plans for a war the political point of view should give way to the purely military if such a point is conceivable that is to say should disappear altogether or subordinate itself to it or whether the political is to remain the ruling point of view and the military to be considered subordinate to it that the political point of view should end completely when war begins is only conceivable in contests which are wars of life and death from pure hatred as wars are in reality they are as we before said only the expressions or manifestations of policy itself the subordination of the political point of view to the military would be contrary to common sense for policy has declared the war it is the intelligent faculty war only the instrument and not the reverse the subordination of the military point of view to the political is therefore the only thing which is possible if we reflect on the nature of real war and call to mind what has been said in the third chapter of this book that every war should be viewed above all things according to the probability of its character and its leading features as they are to be deduced from the political forces and proportions and that often indeed we may safely affirm in our days almost always war is to be regarded as an organic whole from which the single branches are not to be separated in which therefore every individual activity flows into the whole and also has its origin in the idea of this whole then it becomes certain and palpable to us that the superior standpoint for the conduct of the war from which its leading lines must proceed can be no other than that of policy from this point of view the plans come as it were out of caste the apprehension of them and the judgment upon them becomes easier and more natural our convictions respecting them gain in force motives are more satisfying and history more intelligible at all events from this point of view there is no longer in the nature of things a necessary conflict between the political and military interests and where it appears it is therefore to be regarded as imperfect knowledge only that policy makes demands on the war which it cannot respond to would be contrary to the supposition that it knows the instrument which it is going to use therefore contrary to a natural and indispensable supposition but if it judges correctly of the march of military events it is entirely its affair and can be its only to determine what are the events and what the direction of events most favourable to the ultimate and great end of the war in one word the art of war in its highest point of view is policy but no doubt a policy which fights battles instead of writing notes according to this view to leave a great military enterprise or the plan for one to a purely military judgment and decision is a distinction which cannot be allowed and is even prejudicial indeed it is an irrational proceeding to consult professional soldiers on the plan of a war that they may give a purely military opinion upon what the cabinet should do 
but still more absurd is the demand of theorists that a statement of the available means of war should be laid before the general that he may draw out a purely military plan for the war or from a campaign in accordance with these means experience in general also teaches us that notwithstanding the multifarious branches and scientific character of the military art in the present day still the leading outlines of a war are always determined by the cabinet that is if we would use technical language by a political not a military functionary this is perfectly natural none of the principal plans which are required for a war can be made without an insight into the political relations and in reality when people speak as they often do of the prejudicial influence on policy of the conduct of a war they say in reality something very different to what they intend it is not this influence but the policy itself which should be found fault with if policy is right that is if it succeeds in hitting the object then it can only act on the war in its sense with advantage also but if this influence of policy causes a divergence from the object the cause is only to be looked for in a mistaken policy it is only when policy promises itself a wrong effect from certain military means and measures an effect opposed to their nature that it can exercise a prejudicial effect on war by the course it prescribes just as a person in a language with which he is not conversant sometimes says what he does not intend so policy when intending right may often order things which do not tally with its own views this has happened times without end and it shows that a certain knowledge of the nature of war is essential to the management of political commerce but before going further we must guard ourselves against a false interpretation of which this is very susceptible we are far from holding the opinion that a war minister smothered in official papers a scientific engineer or even a soldier who has been well tried in the field would any of them necessarily make the best minister of state where the sovereign does not want to act for himself or in other words we do not mean to say that this acquaintance with the nature of war is the principal qualification for a war minister elevation superiority of mind strength of character these are the principal qualifications which he must possess a knowledge of war may be supplied in one way or the other france was never worse advised in its military and political affairs than by the two brothers belisle and the duke of choiseul although all three were good soldiers if war is to harmonize entirely with the political views and policy to accommodate itself to the means available for war there is only one alternative to be recommended when the statesman and soldier are not combined in one person which is to make the chief commander a member of the cabinet that he may take part in its councils and decisions on important occasions but then again this is only possible when the cabinet that is the government itself is near the theatre of war so that these things can be settled without a serious waste of time this is what the emperor of austria did in eighteen o nine and the allied sovereigns in eighteen thirteen eighteen fourteen eighteen fifteen and the arrangement proved completely satisfactory the influence of any military man except the general-in-chief in the cabinet is extremely dangerous it very seldom leads to able vigorous action the example of france in seventeen ninety three seventeen ninety four seventeen ninety five when carnot while residing in paris managed the conduct of the war is to be avoided as a system of terror is not at the command of any but a revolutionary government we shall now conclude with some reflections derived from history in the last decennary of the past century when that remarkable change in the art of war in europe took place by which the best armies found that a part of their method of war had become utterly unserviceable 
and events were brought about of a magnitude far beyond what any one had previous conception of it certainly appeared that a false calculation of everything was to be laid to the charge of the art of war it was plain that while confined by habit within a narrow circle of conceptions she had been surprised by the force of a new state of relations lying no doubt outside that circle but still not outside the nature of things those observers who took the most comprehensive view ascribed the circumstance to the general influence which policy had exercised for centuries on the art of war and undoubtedly to its very great disadvantage and by which it had sunk into a half measure often into mere sham fighting they were right as to fact but they were wrong in attributing it to something accidental or which might have been avoided others thought that everything was to be explained by the momentary influence of the particular policy of austria prussia england etc with regard to their own interests respectively but is it true that the real surprise by which men's minds were seized was confined to the conduct of war and did not rather relate to policy itself that is as we should say did the ill success proceed from the influence of policy on the war or from a wrong policy itself the prodigious effects of the french revolution abroad were evidently brought about much less through new methods and views introduced by the french in the conduct of war than through the changes which it wrought in statecraft and civil administration in the character of governments in the condition of the people etc that other governments took a mistaken view of all these things that they endeavoured with their ordinary means to hold their own against forces of a novel kind and overwhelming in strength all that was a blunder in policy would it have been possible to perceive and mend this error by a scheme for the war from a purely military point of view impossible for if there had been even in reality a philosophical strategist who merely from the nature of the hostile elements had foreseen all the consequences and prophesied remote possibilities still it would have been purely impossible to have turned such wisdom to account if policy had risen to a just appreciation of the forces which had sprung up in france and of the new relations in the political state of europe it might have foreseen the consequences which must follow in respect to the great features of war and it was only in this way that it could arrive at a correct view of the extent of the means required as well as of the best use to make of those means we may therefore say that the twenty years victories of the revolution are chiefly to be ascribed to the erroneous policy of the governments by which it was opposed it is true these errors first displayed themselves in the war and the events of the war completely disappointed the expectations which policy entertained but this did not take place because policy neglected to consult its military advisers the art of war in which the politicians of the day could believe namely that derived from the reality of war at that time that which belonged to the policy of the day that familiar instrument which policy had hitherto used that art of war i say was naturally involved in the error of policy and therefore could not teach it anything better it is true that war itself underwent important alterations both in its nature and forms which brought it nearer to its absolute form but these changes were not brought about because the french government had to a certain extent delivered itself from the leading strings of policy they arose from an altered policy produced by the french revolution not only in france but over the rest of europe as well this policy had called forth other means and other powers by which it became possible to conduct war with a degree of energy which could not have been thought of otherwise therefore the actual changes in the art of war are a consequence of alterations in policy 
and so far from being an argument for the possible separation of the two, they are, on the contrary, very strong evidence of the intimacy of their connection. Therefore, once more, war is an instrument of policy. It must necessarily bear its character. It must measure with its scale. The conduct of war in its great features is therefore policy itself, which takes up the sword in place of the pen, but which does not, on that account, cease to think according to its own laws. End of chapter 6. Chapter 7. Limited Object. Offensive War. Even if the complete overthrow of the enemy cannot be the object, there may still be one which is directly positive, and this positive object can be nothing else than the conquest of a part of the enemy's country. The use of such a conquest is this, that we weaken the enemy's resources generally, therefore, of course, his military power, while we increase our own. That we, therefore, carry on the war, to a certain extent, at his expense. Further in this way that in negotiations for peace, the possession of the enemy's province may be regarded as a net gain, because we can either keep them or exchange them for other advantages. This view of a conquest of the enemy's provinces is very natural, and would be open to no objection, if it were not that the defensive attitude, which must succeed the offensive, may often cause uneasiness. In the chapter on the culminating point of victory, we have sufficiently explained the manner in which such an offensive weakens the combatant force, and that it may be succeeded by a situation causing anxiety as to the future. The weakening of our combatant force by this conquest of part of the enemy's territory has its degrees, and these depend chiefly on the geographical position of this portion of territory. The more it is an annex of our own country, being contiguous to or embraced by it, the more it is in the direction of our own principal forces, by so much the less will it weaken our combatant force. In the Seven Years' War, Saxony was a natural complement of the Prussian theatre of war, and Frederick the Great's army, instead of being weakened, was strengthened by the possession of that province, because it lies nearer to Silesia than to the Mark, and at the same time covers the latter. Even in 1740 and 1741, after Frederick the Great had once conquered Silesia, it did not weaken his army in the field, because, owing to its form and situation, as well as the contour of its frontier line, it only presented a narrow point to the Austrians, as long as they were not masters of Saxony, and, besides that, this small point of contact also lay in the direction of the chief operations of the contending forces. If, on the other hand, the conquered territory is a strip running between two hostile provinces, has an eccentric position and unfavourable configuration of ground, then the weakening increases so visibly that a victorious battle becomes not only so much easier for the enemy, but it may even become unnecessary as well. The Austrians have always been obliged to evacuate Provence without a battle when they have made attempts on it from Italy. In the year 1744, the French were well pleased even to get out of Bohemia without having lost a battle. In 1758, Frederick the Great could not hold his position in Bohemia and Moravia with the same force with which he had obtained such brilliant successes in Silesia and Saxony in 1757. Examples of armies not being able to keep possession of conquered territory solely because their combatant force was so much weakened thereby are so common it does not appear necessary to quote any more of them. Therefore the question whether we should aim at such an object depends on whether we can expect to hold possession of the conquest or whether a temporary occupation, invasion, diversion, would repay the expenditure of force required, especially whether we have not to apprehend such a vigorous counterstroke as will completely destroy the balance of forces. In the chapter on the culmination point, we have treated of the consideration due to this question in each particular case. 
there is just one point which we have still to add an offensive of this kind will not always compensate us for what we lose upon other points whilst we are engaged in making a partial conquest the enemy may be doing the same at other points and if our enterprise does not greatly preponderate in importance then it will not compel the enemy to give up his it is therefore a question for serious consideration whether we may not lose more than we gain in a case of this description even if we suppose two provinces one on each side to be of equal value we shall always lose more by the one which the enemy takes from us than we gain by the one we take because a number of our forces become to a certain extent like faux fray non-effective but as the same takes place on the enemy's side also one would suppose that in reality there is no ground to attach more importance to the maintenance of what is our own than to the conquest but yet there is the maintenance of our own territory is always a matter which more deeply concerns us and the suffering inflicted on our own state cannot be outweighed nor to a certain extent neutralized by what we gain in return unless the latter promises a high percentage that is is much greater the consequence of all this is that a strategic attack directed against only a moderate object involves a greater necessity for steps to defend other points which it does not directly cover than one which is directed against the centre of the enemy's force consequently in such an attack the concentration of forces in time and space cannot be carried out to the same extent in order that it may take place at least as regards time it becomes necessary for the advance to be made offensively from every point possible and at the same moment exactly and therefore this attack loses another advantage of being able to make shift with a much smaller force by acting on the defensive at particular points in this way the effect of aiming at a minor object is to bring all things more to a level the whole act of war cannot now be concentrated into one principal affair which can be governed according to leading points of view it is more dispersed the friction becomes greater everywhere and there is everywhere more room for chance this is the natural tendency of the thing the commander is weighed down by it finds himself more and more neutralized the more he is conscious of his own powers the greater his resource subjectively and his power objectively so much the more he will seek to liberate himself from this tendency in order to give some one point a preponderating importance even if that should only be possible by running greater risks end of chapter seven chapter eight limited object defence the ultimate aim of defensive war can never be an absolute negation as we have before observed even for the weakest there must be some point in which the enemy may be made to feel and which may be threatened certainly we may say that this object is the exhaustion of the adversary for as he has a positive object every one of his blows which fails if it has no other result than the loss of the force applied still may be considered a retrograde step in reality whilst the loss which the defence suffers is not in vain because his object was keeping possession and that he has effected this would be tantamount to saying that the defensive has his positive object in merely keeping possession such reasoning might be good if it was certain that the assailant after a certain number of fruitless attempts must be worn out and desist from further efforts but just this necessary consequence is wanting if we look at the exhaustion of forces the defender is under a disadvantage the assailant becomes weaker but only in the sense that it may reach a turning point 
If we set aside that supposition, the weakening goes on certainly more rapidly on the defensive side than on that of the assailant, for in the first place he is the weaker, and therefore, if the losses on both sides are equal, he loses more actually than the other. In the next place, he is deprived generally of a portion of territory and of his resources. We have, therefore, here no ground on which to build the expectation that the offensive will cease, and nothing remains but the idea that if the assailant repeats his blows, while the defensive does nothing but wait to ward them off, then the defender has no counterpoise as a set-off to the risk he runs of one of these attacks succeeding sooner or later. Although in reality the exhaustion, or rather the weakening of the stronger, has brought about a peace in many instances, this is to be attributed to the indecision which is so general in war, but cannot be imagined philosophically as the general and ultimate object of any defensive war whatever. There is therefore no alternative but that the defence should find its object in the idea of the waiting for, which is, besides, its real character. This idea in itself includes that of an alteration of circumstances, of an improvement of the situation, which therefore, when it cannot be brought about by internal means, that is, by defence pure in itself, can only be expected through assistance coming from without. Now this improvement from without can proceed from nothing else than a change in political relations, either new alliances springing up in favour of the defender, or old ones directed against him fall to pieces. Here, then, is the object for the defender, in case his weakness does not permit him to think of any important counterstroke. But this is not the nature of every defensive war, according to the conception which we have given of its form. According to that conception, it is the stronger form of war, and on account of that strength it can also be applied when a counterstroke more or less important is designed. These two cases must be kept distinct from the very first, as they have influence on the defence. In the first case, the defender's object is to keep possession of his own country intact as long as possible, because in that way he gains most time, and gaining time is the only way to attain his object. The positive object which he can in most cases attain, and which will give him an opportunity of carrying out his object in the negotiations for peace, he cannot yet include in his plan for the war. In this state of strategic passiveness, the advantages which the defender can gain at certain points consist merely in repelling partial attacks. The preponderance gained at those points he tries to make of service to him at others, for he is generally hard-pressed at all points. If he has not the opportunity of doing this, then there often only accrues to him the small advantage that the enemy will leave him at rest for a time. If the defender is not altogether too weak, small offensive operations directed less towards permanent possession than a temporary advantage to cover losses, which may be sustained afterwards, invasions, diversions, or enterprises against a single fortress, may have a place in this defensive system without altering its object or essence. But in the second case, in which a positive object is already grafted upon the defensive, the greater the counterstroke that is warranted by circumstances, the more the defensive imports into itself of a positive character. In other words, the more the defence has been adopted voluntarily in order to make the first blow surer, the bolder may be the snares which the defender lays for his opponent. The boldest, and if it succeeds, the most effectual is the retreat into the interior of the country, and this means is then at the same time that which differs most widely from the other systems. Let us only think of the difference between the position in which Frederick the Great was placed in the Seven Years' War and that of Russia in 1812. When the war began, Frederick, through his advanced state of preparation for war, had a kind of superiority. 
This gave him the advantage of being able to make himself master of Saxony, which, besides such a natural complement of his theatre of war, that the possession of it did not diminish, but increased his combatant force. At the opening of the campaign in 1757, the king endeavoured to proceed with his strategic attack, which seemed not impossible as long as the Russians and French had not reached the theatre of war in Silesia, the Mark and Saxony. But the attack miscarried, and Frederick was thrown back on the defensive for the rest of the campaign, was obliged to evacuate Bohemia and to rescue his own theatre from the enemy, in which he only succeeded by turning himself with one and the same army first upon the French, then upon the Austrians. This advantage he owed entirely to the defensive. In the year 1758, when his enemies had drawn round him in a closer circle, and his forces were dwindling down to a very disproportionate relation, he determined on an offensive on a small scale in Moravia. His plan was to take Ulmutz before his enemies were prepared, not in the expectation of keeping possession of, or of making it a base for further advance, but to use it as a sort of advanced work, a counter-approach against the Austrians, who would be obliged to devote the rest of the present campaign, and perhaps even a second, to recover possession of it. This attack also miscarried. Frederick then gave up on the idea of a real offensive, as he saw that it only increased the disproportion of his army. A compact position in the heart of his own country in Saxony and Silesia, the use of short lines that he might be able to rapidly increase his forces at any point which might be menaced, a battle when unavoidable, small incursions when opportunity offered, and along with this a patient state of waiting for expectation, a saving of his means for better times became now his general plan. By degrees the execution of it became more and more passive. As he saw that even a victory cost him too much, therefore he tried to manage at still less expense. Everything depended on gaining time and on keeping what he had got. He therefore became more tenacious of yielding any ground and did not hesitate to adopt a perfect cordon system. The positions of Prince Henry in Saxony, as well as those of the king in the Silesian mountains, may be so termed. In his letters to the Marquis de Argent, he manifests the impatience with which he looks forward to winter quarters, and the satisfaction he felt at being able to take them up again without having suffered any serious loss. Whoever blames Frederick for this, and looks upon it as a sign that his spirit had sunk, would, we think, pass judgment without much reflection. If the entrenched camp at Bunzelwitz, the positions taken up by Prince Henry in Saxony, and by the king in the Silesian mountains, do not appear to us now as measures on which a general should place his dependence in a last extremity, because a Bonaparte would soon have thrust his sword through such tactical cobwebs, we must not forget that times have changed, that war has become a totally different thing, is quickened with new energies, and that therefore positions might have been excellent at that time, although they are not so now, and that, in addition to all, the character of the enemy deserves attention against the army of the German states, against Daun and Beturlin. It might have been the height of wisdom to employ the means which Frederick would have despised, if used against himself. The result justified this view. In the state of patient expectation, Frederick attained his object and got round difficulties in a collision with which his foes would have been dashed to pieces. The relation in point of numbers between the Russian and French armies opposed to each other at the opening of the campaign of 1812 was still more unfavourable to the former than between Frederick and his enemies in the Seven Years' War. But the Russians looked forward to being joined by large reinforcements in the course of the campaign. All Europe was in secret hostility to Bonaparte, his power had been screwed up to the highest point, a devouring war occupied him in Spain, and the vast extent of Russia 
allowed of pushing the exhaustion of the enemy's military means to the utmost extremity by a retreat over a hundred miles of country. Under circumstances on this grand scale, a tremendous counterstroke was not only to be expected if the French enterprise failed, and how could it succeed if the Russian emperor would not make peace or his subjects did not rise in insurrection? But this counterstroke might also end in the complete destruction of the enemy. The most profound sagacity could, therefore, not have devised a better plan of campaign than that which the Russians followed on the spur of the moment. That this was not the opinion at the time, and that such a view would then have been looked upon as preposterous, is no reason for our now denying it to be the right one. If we are to learn from history, we must look upon things which have actually happened as also possible in the future, and that the series of great events which succeeded the march upon Moscow is not a succession of mere accidents every one will grant who can claim to give an opinion on such subjects. If it had been possible for the Russians, with great efforts, to defend their frontier, it is certainly probable that in such case the French power would have sunk, and they would have at last suffered a reverse of fortune but the reaction would certainly not have been so violent and decisive. By sufferings and sacrifices, which certainly in any other country would have been greater, and in most would have been impossible, Russia purchased this enormous success. Thus a great positive success can never be obtained except through positive measures, planned not with a view to a mere state of waiting for, but with a view to a decision. In short, even on the defensive, there is no great gain to be won, except by a great stake. End of chapters 6 to 8 Recording by Timothy Ferguson Gold Coast, Australia